I promised you you'd be hearing from some of our younger preachers, so I shaved for the occasion. I've been told it takes five years off my face. My wife said, when are you going to cover it back up? But uh, we're here this evening. I kept my word tonight, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But I'm excited to get to preach to you. Uh, I, I don't get three sermons this go-round, so you're getting the whole book of Colossians tonight. No, I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to key in on one particular section of Colossians chapter 2, though we will be referencing some other parts and talking about the idea of the entire book. As I was praying about this sermon and uh, what God would have me do, where he would lead me, the, the idea of the sufficiency of Christ just kept coming up to me over and over and over again. I could not get away from that. And so when I think about the sufficiency of Christ, I think about the book of Colossians and just the incredible way in which God paints Jesus Christ for who he is and what he is. And we're going to be looking at that this evening. So if you would turn with me to the book of Colossians, like I said, we'll be keying in on chapter two, but we are going to begin together in chapter one and verse one as we look at Paul's introduction to this letter and kind of the introduction to this idea of Christ and who and what he is. Verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice this. He's not worried about Paul. He's not worried about his place. He's not worried about his title. He's worried about the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. He's not just writing to anyone, and he's not just calling them saints. He's not just calling them brothers and sisters. Instead, he's referring to them specifically by their place in Christ. And then he begins to address how they have arrived at that point. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ. In just the intro to this letter, he's already mentioned Christ four times. Everything, himself, the writer, the audience, and their place in Christ all stand out already in just the introduction. This should give you an idea, a thesis almost, if you will, of where this book is headed and what it's going to be talking about and what we're going to be looking at tonight. But just in case they missed it, just a little bit later there in uh, chapter 1, he goes on and he begins to rattle off this list of the attributes of Christ. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in. And then he had to go and put everything in there, right? He could have said all things, but we'll we'll count this as an all anyway. Do do you notice something sticking out there a little bit? Just in case you don't and you're not paying attention, I highlighted them for you. But then he goes on in verse 19, he says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, How did he do that? Having made peace through the blood of his cross. I hope something's beginning to stand out there to you. Something that was Paul's focus. There's no accident that Paul began to phrase things this way. He he could have said this any other way. He could have pointed to the same attributes of Christ in any other way, but he chose repetition. 
And he chose to make this stand out in our minds. Why? Because when we're talking about the sufficiency of Christ, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Notice that as he goes through this again and again and again and again. How many times does he say all things, all powers, all principalities, all people, that all should be? Christ is head over all. Christ, in the book of Colossians, is preeminent. Not only just in creation, but in all things. He is the head. He is that focal point. He is what this entire book is about from beginning to end. His coming, the promise of the work that he would do, the work that he accomplished, and the impact of that work in our lives, even to this day. The work that God will complete even until the day of Christ. He should be the focal point. And that's what Paul sets out to make him. And that's what he's going to be in the passage in which we're going to dwell on this evening. As we go into chapter 2, Paul begins to break this down for the church in Colossae. He says, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. Paul is addressing something with the church here in Colossae, something of utmost importance. Because people were coming in behind him. The world was coming in around them. And they were beginning to undermine this idea that Christ is all. How were they doing that? How were they subverting this idea? Because you see, Satan doesn't begin his attack with people who have a knowledge and an understanding of the truth of Christ with an outright overt denial of Christ. Once we have seen, once we have tasted, we know that Christ is all in all. Once we understand that truth, once we've been exposed to it, there is no denying that Christ is who he says he is. So what does Satan begin to do? He begins to undermine this idea of the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is not only above all things and that all things were made for him and by him, but that Christ isn't quite enough in every one of life's situations. That Christ himself isn't enough for us to live the life that he's called us to live. That Christ himself isn't enough for us to do the things that God has prepared for us to do. In other words, Christ is great, but we need to add something to. There's something else that we're missing. There's something else that we're not getting. There's more to this picture than what we have. And he begins to plant that that little bit of doubt or that little bit of wonder. He, He begins to seed those things into our lives, and he does it in a variety of different ways. Notice the words that Paul uses here in this very same passage. True knowledge. A mystery. Hidden wisdom and knowledge. Persuasive arguments. See, these are all tactics that Satan was using with the church there in Paul's day. Come in and say, you know what? The scripture that you have is great. The encounter that Paul had with Christ was great. But I also had a vision. Or 
I was fasting and praying and this word of God came to me and and let me give you this revelation that God has given me or this thing that God has shown me. Or look around the world. Look at the world around you, at creation around you. I mean, didn't Paul say that we can see evidence of God in creation? So as we look at creation, you know, we we see some things there that don't really jive with what we see in Scripture. So when we begin to look at the two and compare the two, then certainly we must side on the side of our experiences and our encounters. You know, I know Paul says this in his letter, and and I know that he's been teaching this, but in my experience, I feel that... But that's not just in Paul's day, is it? As we look around our world today, we see this same type of attack. We see the same mentality. We see the same snares that the enemy puts out there when it comes to the all-inclusive sufficiency of Christ. Christ is great, but there's always something more. There's always a little more. You know, Christ is great in this aspect of your life or for these things, but day-to-day, really, it's about pragmatism. Day-to-day, it's really about doing what works for you. You know, if you read this in Scripture, that's great. But, you know, this is an old book. It's, it's out of touch with culture today. They didn't understand or have the same understanding of things that we do today. So we have to take it with a grain of salt and, and use it and apply it where we can. Or, or we need to update it for today's standards and today's expectations. See, we're not denying Christ at all. We're simply denying the sufficiency of Christ. And when it comes to Christ, Paul tells us it's all or nothing. There is no Christ plus anything. We either have Christ or we have nothing. We don't have Christ and pragmatism. We don't have Christ and logic and reasoning. We don't have Christ and our feelings. We don't have Christ and what we've experienced. We don't have Christ and our visions. We don't have Christ and grandma's best ideologies. We have Christ or we have nothing. He is either all or he's nothing at all. And Paul is encouraging the church here in Colossae to not be deluded with persuasive arguments of people who are coming in and saying they're missing something. There's a deeper knowledge. There's a deeper understanding. There's something more to be had. But he goes on from there in 2.8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. That word literally means to be plundered and taken away, to be pillaged. He says, make sure that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He says, when it comes to weighing these things out, when it comes to recognizing these snares, when it comes to recognizing these things that people would add to Christ, the standard is Christ himself. When someone comes to us and they say, well, you know, I just feel that. Okay, that's great that you feel that way. But how does that align with Christ? 
You know, in my experience, well, your experience is your experience, but how does your experience align with Christ? Paul said, don't let anyone else take you captive. No matter how enticing it may sound, no matter how logical it might sound, no matter how true to life it might sound, how does it compare to the all in all? To Christ. How does it compare to Christ? As I was going through several different articles this week and trying to keep up the best I can with what's going on in the world, I ran across a couple of interesting things that really played into the message this evening. One was from pop culture. Some of you guys may know who she is. Some of you may not have a clue and you don't care to know, and that's fine. But singer, actress, media influencer by the name of Demi Lovato. She was a child star on Disney. Uh, Kids and teenagers have followed her throughout her career. Now she's a young lady in her 20s, open homosexual, has struggled with drug addiction, has been in recovery, has relapsed, has been in recovery again. She recently tweeted out a series of pictures of herself in Israel. And on her trip there, she was baptized in the Jordan River. She made an extensive post with pictures of her baptism, talking about growing up in a Christian home. And the significance to her of being baptized in the same place that Jesus Christ was baptized. And how she needed that because it filled a God-shaped hole in her life. How many of you all have ever heard the phrase God-shaped hole? You know, there... That's a, that's a legitimate idea if we take it from a scriptural standpoint. But think about what she's saying. Living a lifestyle that is contrary to Scripture, promoting lifestyles that are contrary to Scripture, yet acknowledging who the historical Jesus was, acknowledging religious tradition and religious roots in her own life and the life of her family, and the significance of being baptized at a historical place in some water. And to her, that filled a God-shaped hole in her life. Something that she needed. She's right, she does need to fill that God-shaped hole in her life. But getting wet isn't going to do it. And yet, that's her experience. How do we refute this overwhelming sense of emotion and and spiritual completeness that she says that she has by going through this significant event in her life? And yet it's Christ plus, right? What she's saying is, I can acknowledge the roots and the basic tenets of Christianity. I, I can acknowledge a historical Jesus I could acknowledge some of the things that he taught. I could acknowledge in general principles the things that he stood for. But I don't feel that all of this is true. I don't think that all of this applies to me. I I don't think we should read this passage that way. In my experience, that can't be what that means because Christ plus. But unfortunately, she doesn't understand the truth 
that Jesus is all. We can't add anything to him. Not our feelings, not our experiences, not a significant spiritual reaction when we were baptized in some water. We, we can't add to the work of Christ in our life. We can't add to what he made available to us. We can't add based on ourselves. Another event as I was reading had to do with the Amazonian Synod that's happening right now. The Pope, before he left to go to Brazil, um, had a service there in the Vatican where he was praying a blessing over the upcoming event, the upcoming meeting. And what was disturbing to me were images that I saw of the prayer. Now, there are things that bother me about Catholicism in general. I want to talk about adding to Christ and the work of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. But, but leading up to this event, he was in a garden with many other Catholic officials and some indigenous Catholic leaders from South America who had made the trip to the Vatican, dressed in their indigenous attire, as they sat in a circle on the ground around some graven images of pregnant women and prayed a blessing on this synod that it would go to the extent of opening the church's eyes to the realization of the way that we needed to be caring for our environment and the climate. And that the church would excel in sending out messengers not with the message of Christ, not with the gospel, not with the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone, but with the message of our stewardship of the environment and the world in which we live. Right now there's a working document of this meeting that's going on in which they're supposed to address the understanding that in creating different cultures and people, indigenous groups and indigenous understandings, that God intends that there can be truth found. Not just in different cultures, not just in different people, but in different religions and different understandings. Where are we going in adding to the work of Christ? This isn't just Christ plus, Christ and, Christ or. And yet, Paul spells out clearly, all things were created by him and for him. He went to the cross and completed his work at the command of the Father so that he may redeem all. Not some who choose to come that way and let others go whatever way they please. He says he alone is sufficient. He alone is our all in all. Nothing added, nothing taken away. And then he gets to verse 10, and I want you to notice this. He says, in him you have been made complete. Notice that word complete. Complete. 
It doesn't mean finished. Instead, it's a word that has to do with being filled in. How many of you all like to color? Or you like to color as a kid? How many of you all like to color, but you won't admit it? Now, i got a couple of hands, right? I'll admit my wife loves to color. Um, my children do too. I might on occasion. But do you remember what it was like to get that empty coloring book? Those black and white pages? Those crisp black lines where everything is detailed? What were you supposed to do with your crayons? You stay in the lines, right? But your goal was to fill everything in. Do you all have those parents or those teachers at school who if you left one of the sections white because you wanted it white, they pushed and pushed and pushed and wanted you to fill it in? Anybody have that person? Because that's what we do. The picture's not finished until we fill it all in. And and once we fill it all in and all the sections are complete, we're done. We're done. We put our name on it and it goes on the refrigerator, right? That's what this word here in verse 10 is implying. In him, we have been filled in. We have been made complete. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to finish. We're done. We're the way he envisioned it. We're the way he pictured it. We're the way he wanted it to be. It's complete. There's no more coloring to be done. There's no more white space. There's no more empty space around the edges. Everything is finished in exactly the way he desired for it to be. And he says, in Christ, we've been made complete. We don't find completion anywhere else. We don't find completion anywhere else. No matter what someone might feel, no matter what someone might experience, no matter what your grandma might have told you, we don't find our completion in anyone else or anywhere else but Christ. I don't care what Jerry Maguire said. You do not complete me. That's Christ's job alone. He completes me. If he chooses by completion to bring a mate into my life, that's a compliment to who I am, and I'm a compliment to who they are, if he chooses to bring a best friend into my life who will be my accountability, who will sharpen me, who will spur me on, who will help him sand off the rough edges in my life by their influence on me, that's fine. But who's still doing the work of completing me? Who still knew who needed to be in my life? Who still knew what rough edges needed to be sanded off and the type of person that could do that? See, in Christ, I'm complete. By whatever means, he deems acceptable, but it's in Christ that I'm complete. So what do we mean by complete? Because we're on a journey. Would any, would any of you all say that all your colors have been filled in already? Would any of you all say that you've arrived, that you're 100%? So what then is Paul talking about when he says we're complete? How are we supposed to take this and understand it? Let's look at our our three big church words that we like to throw out here, right? When we talk about salvation. Our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Justification, I want you to think of it tonight as our spiritual standing. Okay? Our spiritual standing. It's where we are in relationship to God. The Bible tells us and teaches us that when we have placed our faith in the work of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection... The salvation, the forgiveness, the restoration that he made possible by our faith in him. It says we stand before God justified. It's a legal standing. 
our sin, not just the guilt of our sin has been taken away, but it says our sin has been taken away. There is no guilt because there is no sin. There is no shame before him because there is no sin. We stand before him innocent. But what about our glorification? We see God doesn't exist in time. He's an eternal being, right? So if we are justified before God because of our faith in Christ now, we're also glorified now. From God's perspective, he sees the end from the beginning, right? He knows exactly who he created us to be, and he knows exactly what we, in our perspective, will be. And he knows exactly where we'll be glorified before him, how we'll be. And as far as God's concerned, he's faithful to complete the work that he began in us. We're glorified. But it doesn't seem that way from our perspective, does it? See, this is the completion that we think about. We're justified. God is eternal. We stand before him glorified. Job's done. All the colors have been filled in. But from our perspective, it doesn't work that way. You see, when we think of sanctification, we think of the spiritual journey. We look at ourselves, we look at the flaws, we look at the bumps, we look at the wrinkles, we look at all the ugly, we look at the white places that he still hasn't finished coloring in, we look at the places where we got out of the lines, and we say, I'm nowhere near complete. I still have needs. God is still working on me. We're still in this journey, but where is our journey headed? Where's our journey headed? I have a big yellow area. Where? Glorification. Glorification. That's right. And we're told in Philippians that Paul is confident in this. God has given him this assurance that he who has began a good work in us will complete it to perfection until the day of Christ Jesus. See, we're on the journey, but we have a promise from the one who never lies who never changes his mind and never falls through on his promises, that we will be completed. And he'll be doing that until the day of Christ Jesus. We are complete. But not just spiritually speaking. When we step back and we look at our lives and we look at this journey, we need to understand that Christ being our all We are complete in what we need. We are completely resourced and outfitted for everything that we need on this journey. It's as if a backpacker set out to climb the highest peak, showing up at the outfitter's shop, right? Telling them what he's going to do and where he's planning to go. And he starts telling them what he needs. They look at him and they say, have you ever climbed a mountain of this height before? Have you ever climbed a mountain at all? Well, no then how do you know what you need? You don't even know what to expect. You don't know what it's going to be like. You can't even begin to understand what all you need in your pack. But we've been there and we know. We know exactly what it's going to take. And we're already one step ahead of you. Here's this pack. And in it is everything you need. 
as far as your outfitting for the journey is concerned, it's complete. And in Christ, on this journey, we find that we have already been given everything that we need. He's accomplished for us everything that's needed. What what kind of things are we talking about? Well, one, adoption, right? Adoption. He says, to those who believe, he's given the power to become the sons of God. And he goes on, he describes himself in many places as a father. You look at Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. And he says, how many of you earthly fathers, if your child asked for a fish, would give him a snake? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? He says, if even then you evil fathers, right? Why are we evil? Compared to the perfection and the standard and the holiness of God? What else could you call us? He says, even if you as evil fathers know how to give your children good gifts, how much more then? Will God give the Holy Spirit to his children who ask? You see, as children, he gave us the power to be children so that we have access to him. We have access to everything that we need. We are co-heirs with Christ. And we're told to come boldly in Hebrews before the throne especially in times of trouble, seeking grace that we need. He tells Paul that his grace is sufficient to meet all of his needs. That's not just in salvation, but also in the journey. Because the journey's long and the journey's hard, and in the journey we need grace. In the journey we need things. We need to be able to call out. We need resource. We need a God who is going to help us endure. And what does he promise? In Hebrews he says he's never going to leave us or forsake us. Matthew 28, 20, as he's giving his disciples the great commission, he says he'll be with them when? Even to the end of the age. He will be there through every step of the journey spurring us along, encouraging us, giving us that shoulder to lean on when we need it. He's got that extra shot of adrenaline when we need it. He's got that extra kick in the pants when we need it. He's got that hand that reaches down and pulls us up out of the dirt when we stumble and fall and we need it. We see this all throughout Scripture. As you get into the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, begin to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they're there in the midst of the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and what does he see? He says, I see four men and one looks like Son of God. He says he's there with us, helping us endure the journey, supplying us, meeting our every need along the way. But not only is he getting us across the finish line, not only is he working in us to do that, it says as we go, he's the one who's helping us change, right? Because that's what this journey of sanctification is. Philippians tells us it's him that's working in us, both to will and to do those things that are according to his purpose. But even more than that, he tells us we can do all things through Christ. There's that pairing of all in Christ again. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He's there for the change. He's there for the journey. But what's amazing is he isn't just a way Right? He isn't just a means of change. Certainly he says he is the way. But notice what he also says. He's the way, the truth, and 
the life. And that's what this change is all about, right? This journey that we're on, this life that we're on, he's not just speaking of eternal life because he is the source of life. He is the hope of life. He is the goal of life. He is our way of life. In fact, he becomes our life. And as we go on in the book of Colossians to chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, Christ who is our life. And that's not the only place that we find that in Scripture. We, we go to Acts chapter 17 and verse 29. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. And what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, he is not only the means of change, he is not only the goal of our change, we're not only to be conformed into his image, but it says he is actually the change that we are trying to be. And he is the one who is living it through us. He's living it through us. He goes on in chapter 2 and verse 20 through 23. He says, if then, right, Galatians 2.20, we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, the commandments and teaching of men, which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul says all of these things that the world is trying to add to Christ, all of these things that you think you can pin onto Christ and attach to Him, have no value against fleshly indulgence. This change that I'm calling you toward, the sanctification process that's going on in your life, all of these things that you're trying to be a better person, to do better, to think better, to act better, anything that you want to add to Christ has no value. It's not effective. It doesn't work. You can go to the Jordan River and be baptized as many times as you want to be baptized. But if you're doing that because that act is significant, because that water is going to do something for you, because that experience is going to offer you change, the only change you're going to get is from dry to wet. It doesn't change anything in here. If you are reading your Bible every single day because that's how you're going to change, because that's what's going to make the difference in your life, all you're going to do is read a whole lot of words. You say, no, wait a minute. You're saying the Bible can't change people? No, it can't. Christ of the Bible changes people. And when we get into this word and we learn more of him and we draw closer to him 
and we understand more of the love that he has for us and the sacrifice he made for us and the reason behind that, when we begin to understand the love he has for the world and for the people around us, and we begin to understand that the way I live and the way I obey shows my love in return to him, and when we begin to understand how we become part of the mission that he is on to see other people come to the knowledge of Christ, then that begins to change us. But sitting down and reading these words every day, just for the sake of reading these words, that doesn't change you. Coming to church every week and sitting in that pew doesn't change you. Because if you don't come with the intent of encountering Christ and letting him speak to your heart, of glorifying him and seeing him glorified in your life, letting him change you and shape you and mold you and send you back out different from the way you came in, nothing's going to change. Because it's not Christ plus church attendance. It's not Christ plus Bible reading. It's not Christ plus baptism. It's not Christ plus how much money you put in the offering plate. It's not Christ plus how many mission trips you go on. It's Christ alone. But when Christ begins to change us and shape us and mold us, we become more and more like Him. It's the 330 principle. Say, what's the 330 principle? John 330. He must increase, so I must decrease. It's tricky. Because if Christ is who we want to be, if he is the change that is our goal, he says it's simple. You get out of the way and let me be. Do you see that? You get out of the way and let me be. Because as you get out of the way, more of me comes through you. And when more of me comes through you, if I'm the goal of what your change is supposed to be, guess what? You're progressing toward the goal. But... But when we try to attach other things to Christ to make this change happen in our lives, it's really us just getting more in the way. When I adopt a mindset of, you know what, I know Christ is working on me, but it's just like the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. So here's what I'm going to do to be a better person. Y'all know that's not in the Bible, right? But, but when we add to this sanctification, when we add to this work that Christ is doing in us, when we add something to Him, we're getting in the way. We're getting in the way of who He is. You see, the change in our life doesn't come out of what we're trying to do and our best understanding and the best that we can reason, or the best that we can experience, or what we feel like we should be doing. The change in us comes when we get out of the way, and we say, God, I I give it all to you. Because you are my all in all. And with all of my life, 
in all of my thoughts, in all of my actions, in all of my words, in all of my decisions, with all of my resources, with all of my time, I want you to come through, all of you, and none of me. That's where change begins to happen. That's where change begins to happen. When we understand that in Him, we're complete. But as long as we're trying to color in this section and we're trying to color in this section with the way that seems right to us, there's no completion. And Paul says when we understand that, then the other things flow out of that. He doesn't just leave it there. He goes on in chapter 3. And all of chapter 3 here in the book of Colossians is about what this new person, once we get out of the way, Christ living through us, it's all about what it looks like. He gives us a few things that it doesn't look like as he begins chapter 3, and he gives us what it does look like as he goes on in chapter 3. But notice all of it goes back to Christ. All of it goes back to Christ. And then he hits this pinnacle verse right here in 17. He says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever we do, do all for him. So Paul leaves us this question. In your life, Is Christ all, or is he nothing? Is he all, or is he nothing? Are you relying on him solely for your salvation? Are you relying on him solely for your sanctification? Are you giving him all of your life? Because he says that's the only thing that he'll accept. That's all that he'll accept is all. He's not interested in this part of your life and this compartment of your life and this compartment of your life while you try to manage these. He's not interested in just the things you want to give. He says it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. Where is he in your life? Is he your all in all? And where is your life in him? Are you all in? Are you living daily, sacrificing it all so that he can live through you? Are you living daily with the understand that in Christ you are complete? You don't have to do anything. Instead, you get to do everything. You don't have to get in your word daily. Instead, you get to. So you can experience more and more of him. You don't have to hit your knees and pray to Him, but you get to. Because being adopted as a child of God gives you access to the throne room. You don't have to share the love of Christ with your coworker or your neighbor. Instead, you get to partner with Him in doing the one thing that He is most passionate about. You don't have to love your spouse and show them care and compassion and concern. Instead, you get to model the Christ whose image you're trying to reflect in that relationship as your Christ to them. Is it all or nothing? 
Is it all or nothing? God, we thank you for this evening and a chance to... uh,